When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. And here we are with another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Joining me right now with offices in New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, California, Colorado, Florida, Michigan, and Texas. My next guest represents a full-service cannabis law firm with a coast-to-coast and global footprint. Very familiar to Cannabis Radio. You might have heard the team over on, uh, God, I mean, even going as far back as our original programming back in 2015. We've been familiar with Vicente Cedarberg LLP. I'm joined by one of the partners, Charles, Charles Alavacetti. Charles, thanks for being on with us. Well, th- thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. So now Vicente Cedarberg supports the tri-state area, which is a little bit of a focus. We want to take on the start of the show with all of the rollout of legalization and implementation of said legalization, adult use of medical in New York and New Jersey proper. Now you're offering a full suite of services, legal, corporate, regulatory policy research, all types of plant touching marijuana, hemp businesses, ancillary businesses, investors, trade associations, governmental bodies. Now, talk to me about some of the legal framework that your team has dealt with so far since the rollout of adult use in New York and New Jersey so far. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm, I'm going to just focus on New York just to, to make okay. it easier to answer the question because it, it's a different answer in New Jersey and a different gotcha. answer in Connecticut. So each, each of these states has kind of a unique system and you know, frankly, I've been focused on New York just because of my own sort of time limitations, uh, you know, right. in picking up these states as, as they come up to speed, because uh, Jersey has can, has a pretty complicated system. Um, and that feels from the beginning, from the limited of, of dispensaries and licenses that they had to the fact that, you know, if people from New York wanted to go ahead and cross over to grab a product it was just it was a lot a very difficult and always been has been that way for a while yeah yeah exactly i mean i was to say some some systems are relatively simple from a regulatory standpoint um and some systems are pretty complicated and and new york new jersey are definitely on the complicated side of the spectrum so yeah i would defer you know my jen cabrera my colleague would was is our jersey expert and she, oh, she also okay. does a lot in new york but i i defer to her on on New Jersey, and then uh, Michelle Bodie, and on the, on the Connecticut side. So I'm just going to focus on on New York, um, just because we all. Oh, that's, and that's totally fine. So, New York being the hot button right now, yeah. anyway, the most current rollout. Go for it. So yeah, so just just big picture, um, New York. It's it's interesting. You know, it's had a medical system for a significant period of time. Mm-hmm. There are currently 10 medical licensees in New York called ROs or registered organizations. And the medical licensees are all vertically integrated um, and have multiple dispensary locations. 
<clears throat> so the, the current system in New York, purely medical, initially it was pretty limited in terms of the qualifying conditions. And if you look at sort of the robustness of a medical program, it, it's typically driven by two fat primary factors. One is, you know, what are the qualifying conditions? Because if you, if you have limited qualifying conditions, it's, it's tough to have a large patient base. And the second is just sort of access. Um, you know, if you have a small number of dispensaries, it's tough to uh, you know, have a robust market. So New York initially was a pretty weak market in terms of the number of qualifying conditions, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's grown substantially since then. And you've seen some pretty high profile deals where people are buying these medical licenses. And the reason they're so valuable is in the law, the MRTA, um, which is the statute that, that created the, the adult use system, the, the medical licensees are going to have an option after paying a fee, which is not, not specified in the statute, uh, to get effectively a vertically integrated adult use license to pair with their medical license, and it'll allow them to open multiple adult use dispensaries. So they will be, with, with a very minor exception we might get into later on the, on the cooperatives, Sure, the only people that will be allowed to be vertically integrated <clears throat> on the adult use side, which is important for a couple of reasons. You know, one is you just got to understand with taxes, if you don't have a cultivation as part of your operations, it really hurts you on the taxes because it's much easier to deduct costs associated with a uh, cultivation facility than a dispensary. And the second is just margin because you can, you know, you can sell your own products. So you're not buying, you know, flour and concentrate, what have you wholesale. So it, it presents a, a significant advantage. And that's why I think you saw these licenses trade for such a large dollar amount, not, notwithstanding the recently broken um, Ascend MedMen deal. I want to talk more about licensing. We're going to do that at the break. But in the, in the terms of the costs for, for setup and startup, for some of these uh, companies looking to make their way in the space, once they get the licensing, oh, we've heard a lot of stories so far about the pricing being a lot, especially for social equity uh, based uh, businesses that want to be a part of the space uh -huh. and the kind of relief that is being done out there from government relief through the state legislature or uh, through various uh, private entities trying to help out with funding and trying to help smooth out the process to get there. Uh, what can you tell me so far, you know, based from other markets, about where that would be the cost for concern about the upstart cost and what kind yeah. of legal uh, untangling you have to go through to get started. Well, the, the, the thing in New York that's really unique, right? You've seen these social equity programs arise in a bunch of states. And, and really one of the main problems with the social equity systems is that, you know, you define social equity in a way that sort of means that most of these people are not going to have much capital or the, the networks that you would need to raise capital. And then, you know, then they want a license, they don't have the money to operate mm -hmm. the business. So they may have to cut kind of a, you know, what some people might say is a predatory deal with a third party. So what, what's New York, what's unique about New York is they have a, they have a special license called the card license, conditional adult use retail dispensary. Okay. And this is, it's unique because for a few reasons, one of which is that to apply for it, it has to be majority owned by someone who has a cannabis conviction in the state of New York, which is sort of 180 degrees of when we started doing this thing in 2015 and, and they would disqualify you for these convictions. Uh, you know, the idea here is to, to, to sort of try and restore the damage from the drug war. 
but the other really unique thing is the state has said that it's going to finance these businesses. They're going to they're going to give them loans um, at a low interest rate, and they're also going to help them get real estate. So the the state of New York, DASNY, Dormitory Authority, the state of New York, has gone out, has hired a broker, and they're trying to lock down dispensary locations, which they'll then sort of help these licensees um, sign up for. Uh, and then they're going to lend them the money at this sort of low, low interest, you know, kind of generous terms. So the idea here is that in theory, at least, you wouldn't need any outside financing to run one of these businesses. Now, you know, with the people I'm working with, I, I always caution them, you know, obviously it'd be great if the state comes up with all the money, but they may not show up with the money you need to run the business. So, you know, you may have to pivot and, and try and raise outside financing. But, you know, that, that's, that's one of the challenges. Of course, you know, when you're talking about startup costs for business, right? It, it does really vary based on the license type. Um, well, can I, let me just run yeah, through please. a story about the fact that uh, there's a bunch of stories that actually your firm has written on, published, published about, of one of the parts is cannabis business funding and equity considerations. For those looking specifically to enter New York, uh, a couple of pa paragraphs I want to read from here real quick. First, once you have your entity and tax status selected, you may need to focus on getting the necessary capital to get your business licensed and operational. Generally, entrepreneurs have the option of raising funds by issuing debt or equity. If you plan to raise funds through debt, lenders are less likely to care what type of entity they are lending to. Historically, equity investors in the startup and venture capital space have been typically more comfortable with dealing with corporations. However, in our experience, we've seen investors become more comfortable investing LLCs, leading to more and more entrepreneurs electing the LLC structure. Entrepreneurs should also remain mindful of any requirements pertaining to social equity status or future requirements that New York might place on certain license types. While these license types can provide some advantages when it comes to the licensing process, they may present challenges for raising capital by restricting the amount of equity that can be issued to investors. Mm -hmm. This can be particularly challenging for applicants with limited assets and no revenue on which to base their valuations. So I wanted to bring that point across and let you uh, expand on that. Yeah. So, you know, I guess a couple issues. One is just entity choice. And, you know, most companies in the U.S. that are, call them startups, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, like a family business, you know, are, are fine, formed as either corporations or LLCs. And really either structure can work. There's, you know, some people have strong opinions uh, one way or the other. The, the primary difference really is how they're taxed. You know, a corporation has two levels of tax and LLC is taxed like a partnership typically and will only have one level of tax. The, the nuance for a social equity company is the state has specific requirements for what its cap table needs to look like to maintain in good standing. So in New York with these retail, these conditional retail licenses, you, you know, essentially it has to be majority owned by someone who has both the cannabis conviction or someone in their immediate family, uh, and they have to have been a a biz, an owner of a profitable business. So you know, fifty one percent of your cap table is is effectively sort of locked in. So you've only got forty nine percent to play with if you have to raise money, and and that's the challenge here. Is right. you know, it, suppose the remainder of the forty nine percent of the company, if if the fifty one percent has to say fifty one percent. 
the other shareholders effectively get sort of double diluted by, by any financing that comes in. And the other thing to bear in mind is that any changes in that cap table are going to require, are going to require regulatory consent. Uh, so you can't necessarily do it quickly. No, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long process and a, and a pretty expensive process at that. And so Charles, I want to go to a break. We, you had mentioned before about co-op licenses or cooperative licenses. I want to ask you about that. And also the uh, areas where it comes to businesses opening up LLCs. I want to ask you about that as well. And a number of things when it comes to, uh, well, I'll just leave it right there. I'm here with Charles Alavacetti, partner at Vicente Cedarburg LLP here on Blunt Business. We'll be back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I don't want to give out all the little T's and details. I want to make sure everybody stuck around for the break. Uh, Vicente Cedarberg, partner, Charles Alvarosetti is with me on Blunt Business. And Charles, I wanted to continue a little bit on the area of what was discussed before about cannabis business funding and equity considerations for the New York market we're specifically talking about in the program today. The explanation on the licensing process uh, from the same story, uh, there, there are a variety of entity types to choose from, but most are either a co- or corporation or a limited liability company, LLC, LLC being the newest business type entity and providing the most flexibility. Whether the LLC will be operated more similarly to a corporation or a partnership is a decision for each respective LLC's founders. One consideration that's unique to New York, which you mentioned before the break, was cooperative or co-op licenses. Entrepreneurs interested in applying for one of these co-op licenses should speak with counsel at their earliest convenience as New York has specific requirements for entity selection selection and corporate governance. Can you break down what the co-op licenses entail in terms of those requirements? So a co-op license is, you've seen other states do something like this. California has a license type like this. It's meant to be sort of a small social equity license type that allows you to be vertically integrated. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I mentioned there's kind of one small exception for vertical integration. Uh, And and that's for these co-op licenses. Now you can't actually apply for these yet. Uh, There's only three license types right now in New York on the adult use side that they've actually given out or are in the process of giving out that's cultivation, processing, and, and retail. Retail is going on right now. It closes on September 26th. So if, if you got a marijuana conviction in the state of New York uh, and you own a profitable business, you get six days to apply. Uh, but yeah, the co-op license is going to come out later. We don't really have the regulations yet, but it's essentially meant to be sort of a smaller license. 
um, that will will permit you to be vertically integrated. Um, I don't know how off the top of my head, I don't know how large the you know the canopy can be. I imagine it's it's probably not huge. Um, because it's, it's typically a smaller type operation these are licensed for. And then you can you can form that as a cooperative, which is sort of an entity type that you almost, I've never seen in, in, uh, in I guess, over seven years of cannabis work, I've never seen an entity that's been formed as a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, I think it, it, it basically, it is what it sounds like, which is that it's sort of like primarily a, think of an agricultural cooperative, you know, it's not necessarily as bottom line focused uh, as a typical entity type. And there may be ways for people to contribute capital to a cooperative without being offsides of the license cap and vertical integration prohibition in New York, which are both pretty strict. So in New York, they've got basically, it's like, it's like alcohol. It's a modified two-tier system where you either have to be on sort of the grow processing side, or you can be on the kind of retail consumption lounge side, but you can't be on both sides. And when I say you can't be on both sides, I mean, you really can't be on both sides. There are limitations on being even a small equity holder in a grow and a small equity holder in, in a store it's pretty strict. And then you're also limited in terms of how many licenses you can hold on, on each side of the fence. Uh, but a cooperative, there seems to be a way within a cooperative to contribute capital to a co-op without kind of implicating yourself in this vertical integration prohibition. So that's, that, I think that's interesting. And, and I hope it makes it easier for the social equity licensees to raise capital because that's kind of the challenge you know, I face in advising our clients that oftentimes they have challenges raising money. And then, you know, you, you just, I look at it as like raising money is tough, right. On its own. I don't, I don't know if you've ever tried to raise money for a company, but convincing someone, no. to invest, <laughs> convincing, yes, convi- convincing someone to give you, you know, their cash to build a business is not always easy. Right. And then on top of that, you know, you, now you start to stack additional challenges, right. Which is, you know, not only do I need to find someone who's willing to invest in cannabis, they also can't have any of certain types of investments in the state of New York, or they never want to make these investments in the future because by investing in you, they precluded and make those investments. So that's kind of my, my big message to, to any regulators who are listening is I, I understand the, the, the concern to protect people and to avoid sort of exploitative um, deals. But, you know, people also need to be able to raise money because, you know, if you can't raise the money for your your cooperative, and hopefully it's easier, you, unless you have a substantial amount of money in the bank, it's going to be tough to get that business off the ground. Part of the thing, too, that I've always talked about here on the program and just, you know, internally is the fact that there were a lot of companies that we saw that were given quite a bit of seed funding, got, went through seed rounds, got funding, and then the money was squandered. Without naming names, it's just something where there was some real irresponsible, frivolous use mm-hmm. of funding for, you know, nefarious purposes. And I remember just working, you know, and, and connecting with people 10 years ago for a startup community, a networking community of uh, different people that were trying to start up their businesses, reaching out to people that were either angel, angel investors or whatever, trying to go ahead and, you know, speak what they have of what, what they're offering in terms of trying to get funding and trying to get their product up to market and trying to get the licensing in terms of like a cannabis business, same way would be here. But that's 
I'm I'm pretty sure. Now, is that do you feel like is that something that is still a major cause of concern, or do you feel like as we're getting that more of that more or less that kind of activity is being weeded out? No, I mean it's it's you know here's if people have invested their money in the space and they didn't do well on their initial investment, I think it you know not surprisingly it makes them a little hesitant to invest again. Yeah. Or if, if they have already invested sort of all their money that they feel comfortable investing in cannabis, that also makes it tougher to raise money. So yeah, the, the challenge is that, um, you know, people are a little gun shy now, I think right. uh, about the sector. I mean, I, I remain very bullish about the sector long-term, but I, I totally understand why people might be, be skeptical. Um, there have been bad actors in the industry. I mean, they're, I, and I would say there's the people that have lost money for their investors that, that they weren't bad actors. I mean, you know, starting a business is, is tough. And a lot of people went out, raised money, gave it up honest try and just weren't able to deliver. I mean, it's not, you know, it's like, you don't hit a home run every time you come up to bat. Right. No, but I also think there are just some of those people that invest that they want to go into something that's kind of much alternative or fringe, mm-hmm. not your traditional investment. So they still see cannabis as that. And so yeah. there are some people that will, you know, take their money from another space and they're not they're, they They don't mind the high risk. They might think it's just high risk. Let's just go for it. They might not realize that, you know, the people that have come into the industry that if you want to do a kind of prospectus and really understand and evaluate where the industry has gone in the last five, like especially in the last seven years, you've been practicing in cannabis. You see the difference. You see the players that are in here. And the other thing I, don't, I have always been a point of, uh, I always reference this interview with uh, Steve D'Angelo on the Green Peak on our uh, uh, companion series with Richard Zwicky, always making the point that there are, among people he knows of in Silicon Valley, there are definitely those investors that are just waiting for the pull, the lever to be pulled on legalization nationwide. And then you're going to have another influx of capital available for investment to various companies out there. But in the meantime, MSOs are just combining and consulting forces until we get to somewhere. And I'm sure that's the same thing going on in New York. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 there's definitely, you know, if you, if you look at, if you sort of do the, the you know, kind of the Venn diagram, right. One circle is people with, with capital that they're able to, you know, that they have ready to invest. And then the other circle is people that are willing to invest in cannabis, right? So it's not, you're only capturing a certain percentage of the capital pool available in the United States. Um, you know, obviously institutional money is, is largely outside of the space. You know, some institutional money has gone into other countries, right? You know, Canada being a big example, though people necessarily haven't do, done great on that investment. I think has has dampened expectations. Yeah, but yeah, no, I I think that uh, you know that that's why if you look at a lot of what people are saying, you know, that's why people are so excited about safe banking potentially passing because you know that that just sends a signal to the market that this thing's on the upswing, and you know if if and when you know when that passes, that's definitely going to I think lead to a uptick in, in stock prices and in, in capital coming into the industry. So the lame duck session came and went. Congress could have done something, but, you know, more than likely than not, the midterm elections are here. So any other potential passage, we just have to see how things shuffle in Congress for November 2022, the midterm elections coming up. Until then, we can't see any kind of relief like that. We're just going to have to wait another three to six months to see if anything else rears its head to see if anything will happen. So 
That's what it is in that more part. I want to go ahead and go to another break. And there's some great work that you're doing in terms of pro bono work that I definitely want to spotlight on. That's extremely important. And I'm really happy to go and read about this. And I also want to talk about uh, thoughts about the potential opportunities in psychedelics. As you know, Cannabis Radio, we've already launched several series on the network that are specific on that. Um, we have our Psychedelic Passes series, Psychedelic Radio. And we do quite a bit of psychedelic talk with our new series with Dr. O, uh, Dr. Lola Ohomba with Let's Talk Plant Medicine. Make sure if you haven't gone to Cannabis Radio lately, we have six new series now available. Actually, five, one more in the works as I'm recording this today that are now available with new episodes. Go ahead and look. We got a lot of new content up on the website. Check that out in the meantime. And we're going to come back with more with Charles Alavacetti, partner at Vicente Cedarburg. LLP here on Blunt Business after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with a partner at Vicente Cedarburg. By the way, website is vicentecedarburg.com, V-I-C-E-N-T-E-S-E-D-E-R-B-E-R-G. And Charles, I want to go into a couple other stories to wrap things up here. One of your firm's attorneys, Shane Pennington, spoke with Gondramador. And he talked about the work done pro bono in a lawsuit against the Drug Enforcement Association or administration, the DEA by Dr. Sue Sisley, MD, who we praise and, you know, we uh, cheerlead for her with her great work that she's been doing uh, to deal with the DEA and um, the same thing with the FDA for that in general as well. For years, she's been trying to get federal approval for her study that sought to investigate the therapeutic effects of cannabis for veterans with PTSD. That's been her long long uh her or uh what's the one we're for yeah the, the the path that she's been trying to take this effort she's been trying to make so far seven bulk manufacturer marijuana growers have received a federal cultivation license from the dea and the united states department of justice therefore these seven licensees now can produce and sell cannabis for research purposes this is a huge step for science and the future of cannabis what can you tell me about the progress being made here and what's been done here? Really important that you see now as a firm to help Dr. Seuss Lee out. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, at that root, the problem is pretty simple, which is that if you were trying to do research on cannabis, historically, you could only get cannabis from the, the one licensed grow from the feds, which was at Ole Miss. Um, and that that's been operational for a long time. And the problem is that their cannabis is not very good. And they can't really grow it to spec because for these studies, if, if you read what Dr. Sisley has been trying to do, you know, they want certain types of strains. They want certain amounts of THC, certain amounts of CBD, right? And you can't really dial that in at the old, the old facility. Um, and people would always complain about what they would get uh, from them. So, that, so that's why, you know, you have to have a better grow facility uh, if you're actually going to do real research. Um, so yeah, as, as you point out, seven people have these federal licenses. There have been, I think Shane was telling me like something like 70 applications in front of the agency. They, they five were accepted in 21, two more since then. There's not really a reason to think they might issue additional ones. Um, but yeah, there, there's seven out there, which is, you know, it's, it's a lot better than one. Um, and uh, yeah, this is Scottsdale Research Institute, which is the one that uh, Dr. Sisley is, is working with is, you know, it's, it's actively growing. So I, it's I think it's wonderful to see that go on and, and to hear that kind of news, because I know that 
across the board, I've for years I've been talking about on this show about the need for the ability to do research, to be able to go ahead and and have the you know have the product grown so you can actually have something to test because it was always so much about having to go ahead and find ways to outsource or what was available to test and do research for, which was always a major issue. But now having these licenses out here for the purpose of, and that the DEA and DOJ have finally let that happen. And, you know, it's the fact that that's a commendable that Vicente Cedarberg was able to do that and go up against the government to get this to happen. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was I mean, it was, it was pretty exciting to see it happen. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, there's so much potential, I think, from a medical perspective about the plant. Um, and it would be unfortunate if, if most of the research is done overseas. I mean, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just a question of where, uh, you know, in the globe it occurs. Well, because, because we've heard a lot of, about what's happening in Israel and the yeah. great work they're doing. But of course, every time it gets brought over here, I mean, just imagine with the FDA uh, implementation of the HEP bill and how that's not gotten past it. We don't have the regu- we don't have the requirements, the regulations, any kind of framework yet. And this is what four years later, because of the fact that there's all these different pieces of red tape. That okay, here's the research from Israel. What well, doesn't matter? We don't have it here. Well, now we're trying to get it here. We've been trying to do that for years, mm-hmm. and it's just trying to further the cause. That's part. It's just. I mean, it, it, I not should be surprised anymore. Sometimes I used to feel like I was a little bit triggered or, or bothered by it, but really I just feel so cynical now. It's just like, it's part of life. But like I said, it's firms like yours that are making that effort. That's very important. So I really appreciate that. I wanted to make sure I point that out as we go along. One of the story I want to wrap up with you, Charles, is how about your firm has recently written about commercial, current commercial opportunities that involve psychedelics. Let me read this real quick. Quote, two approaches apply to commercial operations, the traditional medical path and the emerging non-medical state regulated path, while the other two paths are better seen as non-commercial, which is underground therapy and religious use. So we're saying ceremonies or journeys. Can you expand on those opportunities and what the FDA has approved so far that warrants a potential opportunity? As we talked about, we don't have to worry about any kind of government legislation it's what the fda decides to approve which particular treatments or which particular medications are deemed you know safe and allowed to be administered well i i would point out that you know legislation would help things mostly because most of these psychedelic substances are, are schedule one um which, which means that according to the Controlled Substances Act, there's, there's no accepted medical use for them and they're considered at high risk of abuse. So any, any, de- any down scheduling, and, and it doesn't mean necessarily mean you can get a prescription for it right off the bat, but if, if you were to reschedule it, it's going to make it easier to do research, to go through FDA trials and all that. Um, so, you know, but I don't think there's any legislation uh, coming anytime soon. That said, there, there are a lot of pretty exciting trials that are going on right now. A lot of these companies are publicly traded. And, and this is what I call the, um, the traditionally regulated medical practice path. And these are basically companies that are, you know, they've got a drug somewhere in the, you know, the approval process with the FDA. Um, so, you know, if you, if you look this up, right, like an example for psilocybin would be the, the Compass Pathways, um study 
Uh, and then, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's also, there are also studies in, in later phases with respect to MDMA. The, the only psychedelic right now that can currently be prescribed is ketamine. So that, that's what, that sort of explains the ketamine clinics. You can see everything else is, is not, um, you can't get a prescription for right now. Right. For any reason. Um, so yeah, there's like basically two potential pathways we could see move forward for psychedelics on a commercial level, right? You know, I point out in the article, if you, if you, if you Google my name and, and psychedelics, you can find it pretty easily. But if you look at Mike and Michael Pollan's book, you know, everything he's describing in that book is sort of these sort of like below the radar, um, sort of under, under, underground therapists, or, or, you know, sometimes people call them shamans, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So th- that stuff is all sort of non-commercial. Like those people aren't going out and raising money from venture funds. Uh, but there's going to be a new path forward, which is similar to cannabis, right? Which is it's regulated, pretty heavily regulated at the state level, but it's outside of the traditional medical system. So Oregon's going to be the first one that launches. They've got their draft rules out, um, which, you know, if, again, if you, if you look, look at what I've written, there's, we, we, my colleague Sally did a summary of these rules, but they're going to start licensing in 2023. That's right. going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot like cannabis, right? So it's not, you know, the, the, the psilocybin, what have you, it's not going to be prescribed by doctors. It's, it's not sort of done under the purview of the FDA. It's, it's done under a state regulated system. And I, th- and we've also got a ballot initiative that's going to create something similar in Colorado that hopefully passes this, this, this fall, knock wood. It's my partner, Josh Kappel, who's been, who's been spending a lot of time on that. Um, and then, you know, hopefully you see other states kind of follow in, in the footsteps. Um, right. You know, that I don't know what, yeah. Exactly. So well, yeah, I want to go bring up a few things that you brought up and make sure to give context so that the audience can go and find all this information out there. Number one, when you mentioned uh, Compass Pathways, a London-based company and a nonprofit Usona Institute in Madison, Wisconsin, being granted FDA breakthrough therapy status for psilocybin treatments and launch phase two trials. And so they are recruiting what over 200 people, uh, random uh, clinical trials. And going through so much with that, not to mention the other research being down out there when it comes to the in London uh, with what I think was a United College. Also, not to mention all the work that's being done in State University of Stanford or John Hopkins University and all the work you're doing on psychedelics as well. And also the link to the story you're talking about. Look for it on VicenteCederberg.com in their blog under Insights. Look for understanding the current legal status of psychedelics in the United States. And you give a great breakdown of all the active clinical trials and state regulated systems. So you understand which particular uh, medications or which particular treatments are where they are with legal status, where they are in active FDA regulated clinical trials and state regulated systems. It's all broken down there for you. Plus, you also talk about proposed legalization and about initiatives that could impact legal status of psychedelics. Bookmark this this uh, link if you would. You should go and do that. I will try to make sure to go ahead and get this included into the show description to have people to go ahead and check that out as well. Charles, so much information. We're out of time. <laughs> if I had more time, I would I would I would get, go and continue. But I think we're just going to go and table. Let's come back to this, especially on the psychedelics part. I'd love to go and continue that conversation. Yeah, I know. Likewise, I mean, psychedelics is super exciting. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, yeah. we've really been opening our eyes the last year and a half to seeing what's going on now. And, and just, you know, it, it's like right now, psychedelics is starting to hit viral. 
the momentum is really coming up right now. And, you know, in a way, I still think, yeah, it's going to have that same kind of trajectory where cannabis was five years ago. But I think there are some things that are there's uh, some things that are happening, which will be more in the favor of psychedelics that will give us a little bit less issues towards progress like cannabis had to go through because cannabis had a much bumpier ride. But I don't think psychedelics just have that much. I think the fast track to various legalization, whether it's in Colorado or Washington state or what they've already done in Oregon so far implemented, we're going to just see where it goes. So I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us again. I've been joined with Charles Alavacetti, partner at Vincente Cedarburg LLP. Thanks for taking out time to go ahead and tell us all about the great news you're doing right now in New York and New Jersey and the various parts when it comes to pro bono work and psychedelics. Thanks again. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And real quickly, for people that want to go and meet your either connect with you or the firm, please let people know how they can go and contact you. Yeah, I mean, really, if you just if you just Google Olivacetti, I have a pretty unique last name. If you just Google Olivacetti, you'll 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 find me pretty easily. Yeah, uh, that's just and uh, yeah, just go to the website VicenteCedarburg.com. But really, just just Google Olivacetti cannabis or just Olivacetti, and you, you can find me and you got my email address and. Of course, I'd also suggest if you're interested in cannabis, I, I wrote the book on cannabis law. It's called The Cannabis Business. It's kind of a breakdown of, um, you know, it's like Cannabis Law 101. If you're interested in the yeah. space, I suggest you, you you read up on the laws. All, all profits go to charity. Uh, you can buy it wherever you can buy a book, you know, Amazon, BarnesandNobles.com, all that, all that kind of stuff. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. We'll definitely keep in touch. And thank you, listeners, for listening to another Blunt Business. We'll talk to you next time. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.